Welcome to On the Docket with the National Drug Court Resource Center. And I'm your host, Anna Kuzman. The National Drug Court Resource Center, also known as NDCRC, is housed in the Justice Programs Office, a center in the School of Public Affairs at American University. JPO provides research, technical assistance, training, program evaluation, and capacity building services to jurisdictions, organizations, and government agencies throughout the U.S. and internationally. The National Drug Court Resource Center is part of the Bureau of Justice Assistance at U.S. Department of Justice's Drug Court Initiative. NDCRC is the go-to place for drug court practitioners to access a wide variety of resources to make their programs as effective as possible. The ideas and thoughts expressed in this podcast do not directly reflect those of the Justice Programs Office, American University, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, or the Department of Justice. And uh, the very night I actually was caught in a person's house on duty. And my intentions were I was looking for drugs and um, I had entered the house. And I certainly wasn't in the right state of mind, but I had run out of the opiates and I was in withdrawals. And all I could think about was getting something to ease my pain. And, uh, and the homeowner came home, and I ended up being confronted by the homeowner. And it just kind of uh, crescendoed from there and ended up calling the sheriff and the county attorney. And That was Jeff Falk, a former Cascade County police officer who now works with the Cascade County Drug Court in a different capacity. In this episode, we will discuss opioids, meet some folks who have been impacted by them, both personally and professionally, their effects, and how drug treatment courts are dealing with this crisis. I visited a place that is still working to improve the rate of drug use in their community, Great Falls, Montana. I spent some time with a few individuals who work with the Adult Drug Treatment Court and Veterans Treatment Court in Cascade County, where Great Falls is located. And when I asked them about drug use in the community, this is what they had to say. Opiates is definitely on the rise. I've seen it increasing as I've been here in the past three years. Uh, People using a lot of prescription drugs, a lot of opiates. In terms of drug use, there is a lot of meth and there is a lot of opiate addiction. We're seeing heroin. It was always creeping in. You know, now we have police officers carrying Narcan. Opiates. Opiates is a problem in the entire nation. Some parts of the nation don't have as much of a meth problem but we do. There was a little bit of a dip in meth use and then it started getting more popular. Most of what we see at this point is methamphetamine. Polydrug use um, is is quite common and so you'll see people using methamphetamines and heroin or marijuana and heroin or methamphetamines and marijuana or sometimes all three. No matter what race, color, age you are, meth is go-to. It's been pretty likely that that methamphetamine is laced with heroin. When I travel around Montana, I've seen paintings about saying meth not even once, and they'll just do street art about it. Meth is a problem in Montana in general, not just in Great Falls. I was speaking to our drug nar- narcotics detectives or, or narcotics detectives, and I asked them, how much, how much meth are we, are we using a day? And, and uh, their best guess was about a half a pound a day. And so when you look at a half a pound a day, 
Um, that's huge. In a little community like this, 365 days a year, we're using half a pound. You run that out at, at $75 a gram, and you're looking at over $6 million a year in our community, and that's huge. Drug overdose deaths are now the leading cause of injury death in the United States. According to the Center for Disease Control, the latest data from 2016 reported that the five states with the highest rates of death due to drug overdoses were West Virginia, Ohio, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. The latest data from the CDC also estimates that on average, 115 Americans die every day from an opioid overdose. 66% of overdose deaths in 2016 were opioid-related. According to the 2016 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, approximately 667,000 people were currently using meth at the time of taking the survey. There were also about 65,000 young adults aged 18 to 25 years old who used meth in the past month when they took the survey. Between 80 and 90% of people who use heroin are also using meth. Nearly 80% of people who use heroin reported misusing prescription opioids prior to switching to heroin. That last stat gets at the crux of the issue. We are seeing people develop a substance use disorder from the pain medications like oxycodone or hydrocodone that they are prescribed for injuries or while recovering from surgeries. While there have been regulations put into place like the CDC's prescribing guidelines and the growing use of prescription drug monitoring programs to prevent patients from doctor shopping or from doctors becoming pill mills, we are seeing those people turn from these pills after they have finished their original prescription to buying prescription opioids illegally on the street and then eventually to heroin. Buying prescription opioids on the street can be expensive, which is part of the reason that people are switching to heroin, because it is so much cheaper than prescription opioids. Discouraging as this may sound, the data indicates that the states that have been most adversely impacted, like Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia, saw notable decreases in emergency department visits related to non-fatal opioid overdoses. Opioids refers to a class of drugs, both legal and illegal, used to relieve pain. Doctors prescribe opioid medications to treat moderate to severe pain, often after injury or surgery. They work by attaching to the receptors on nerve cells in the body and brain, reducing the intensity of pain signals and feelings of pain. Opioid pain medications are generally safe when taken for a short time and as prescribed by a doctor, but because they produce euphoria in addition to pain relief, they can lead to dependence and misuse. Opioids are considered to be depressants. There are three types of opioids, natural opiates, semi-synthetic opioids, and synthetic opioids. Natural opiates are derived from a chemical found in plants, like the opium poppy, and is included in drugs such as morphine and codeine. Semi-synthetic opioids are created in labs from natural opiates. Examples of these include hydrocodone, oxycodone, and heroin. Synthetic opioids are developed without any natural opiates and are completely man-made. Examples include fentanyl, tramadol, and carfentanil. To put these drugs in perspective, acetaminophen and aspirin are each 1 360th of morphine. Hydrocodone is about as strong as morphine. Oxycodone is about 50% stronger than morphine. Methadone is three times stronger than morphine. Heroin is between two and five times stronger than morphine. 
Fentanyl is between 50 and 100 times stronger than morphine, and carfentanil is 10,000 times stronger than morphine. This is all to say that illegal drug distributors are not being methodical about the amounts of fentanyl or carfentanil that they are mixing into heroin. Meth, on the other hand, is classified as a stimulant. People can take methamphetamine by inhaling or smoking it, swallowing it in pill form, snorting it, or injecting the powder that has been dissolved in water or alcohol. Meth increases the amount of the natural chemical dopamine in the brain, which is why people experience a rush, which is the feeling of euphoria, or what some people call a flash when they use it. In some cases, people take meth in a form of binging known as a run, giving up food and sleep while continuing to take the drug every few hours up to several days. People who use meth are known to have extreme paranoia, hallucinations, and become violent. Meth overdoses can lead to stroke, heart attack, or organ problems, such as kidney failure caused by overheating. The CDC estimates that there has been a 255% increase in deaths from stimulant use, mostly from meth, between 2005 to 2015. However, there is nothing like naloxone, the opioid reversal drug, to reverse a meth overdose. Great Falls, Montana is the third largest city in the state with just under 60,000 residents. It sits in the center of Cascade County, which has about 80,000 residents. 89% of the county's residents identify as white, with African Americans and Native Americans as the next two largest minority groups. According to the 2010 U.S. Census, the per capita income at the time for the county was $17,566, and 14% of the population was living below the poverty line. Great Falls is part of the Rocky Mountain High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area, also referred to as HIDA, which is funded and coordinated by the Office of National Drug Control Policy to monitor areas of high drug trafficking around the country. Uh, we're right on the drug road from Mexico to Canada, so a lot of different drugs get brought in here, and it's a little bit cheaper here than it might be elsewhere. That was Lizzie Brandeberry, who is the coordinator of the Veterans Treatment Court. Meth manufacturers can make the drug in small, secret labs with inexpensive, over-the-counter ingredients such as pseudoephedrine, a common ingredient found in cold medicines like Sudafed. You might know this if you have seen the TV show Breaking Bad, which focuses on a high school chemistry teacher who manufactures meth out of his RV using simple ingredients that he buys at a drugstore and hardware store. However, most of the meth found in the U.S. is manufactured in super labs in the U.S. or Mexico. Well, with regard to um, methamphetamine, I mean, it, particularly throughout the western United States, um, methamphetamine is a substantial issue in the criminal justice system. This is Judge Pinsky. He presides over the Cascade County Adult Drug Treatment Court and Veterans Treatment Court. Primarily because with the legalization of marijuana in contiguous states, the, the Mexican drug cartels have shifted their focus from the, the manufacture and harvesting of marijuana and transport in the United States to the large-scale industrial manufacture of methamphetamine. So um, that has surpassed marijuana coming in and coming across the border and up the interstate to Canada, which runs right through us. And so that being said, um, we, we really don't see any local production or significant production of methamphetamine anymore because the meth that's coming across the border from Mexico is so potent and so pure, and it's more cost-effective from a, from a drug standpoint 
to buy that methamphetamine than it is to produce your own. And so um, we, we will always have a meth problem because of that issue. But, you know, the, the opioid crisis is much more significant because from a treatment standpoint, in my experience, I'm not a treatment professional, but it's much more difficult to treat the opioid addiction than it is the methamphetamine addiction. So it, it's clearly um, an issue and that, that we face every single day. Mexican drug cartels have turned to manufacturing and trafficking heroin and meth into the U.S. because they can no longer compete with the more potent, higher-grade domestic varieties of marijuana being produced in greenhouses in states that have legalized recreational marijuana. In 2015, customs officers seized 6,429 pounds of meth and 514 pounds of heroin at the border. While the opioid crisis was getting underway in the U.S., the Mexican drug cartels were monopolizing on the North American market for meth. Public health experts have said that the opioid crisis and the efforts to combat that drug has made room for meth use to also make a comeback. It's no secret that we have overcrowded our prisons in this country. With the system broken, a group of justice experts established what is now known as problem-solving courts. With the crack cocaine epidemic of the late 20th century, the establishment of drug courts in 1989 in Miami-Dade County revolutionized how the judicial system would approach drug offenses and addiction. Drug courts are a subcategory of problem-solving courts and are also referred to as treatment courts and accountability courts. I do want to be transparent. There have definitely been some criticisms of drug courts over the years, and I will be discussing these in part three of the mini-series. By choosing to be part of this program, participants have the chance to be diverted from the commonplace court system and the sanctions that typically follow. These courts are unique because they focus on rehabilitating and treating individuals entering the criminal justice system, rather than taking on the normal penal role as the traditional courts do. They emphasize individualized justice, where the court identifies the services the participant needs, as well as provide the victims of the offense any services needed for their recuperation. They integrate intensive supervision, mandatory drug testing, incentives and sanctions, and treatment approaches to ensure the individual receives the treatment for their substance use. And lastly, they collaborate with a team of court officers, a judge, and the treatment community to achieve the goal of restoring the participant as a productive member of society. I want to introduce you to the team members who work on the Adult Drug Treatment Court and the Veterans Treatment Court of Cascade County. We will be hearing from them throughout the three-part series. Greg Pinsky, I'm a district judge and I also preside over the 8th Judicial District Adult Drug Treatment Court and Veterans Treatment Court. My name is Lizzie Brandberry, and I am a coordinator for both the Adult Drug Treatment Court and the Veterans Treatment Court. My name is Andrea Fisher. I'm one of the coordinators for the Veterans Treatment Court and the Adult Drug Treatment Court in the Montana 8th Judicial District. I'm Megan Bailey, and I am the clinical manager at Gateway Community Services. Uh, my name is Jeff Falk, and I, for the last three years, have been uh, the counselor assigned to adult treatment court in Cascade County. Uh, Danny Williams, uh, state probation parole officer, the liaison between probation parole and the drug treatment court and the veterans treatment court. Gayla Gooden, the MariCorps VISTA. My name is Officer Clint Houston from the Great Falls Police Department, and I work in our Support Services Bureau. My name is Michelle Coppany, and I am the case manager. Michelle has been with the drug court for nine years, and she actually volunteered for them when she first started. How many years have you been working with the drug court? Um, nine years. Yep, nine years here in this uh, court. Okay. I actually heard that you volunteered 
I did. for the first few. I did. I did. Um, I had been working at Gateway Recovery Center for 13 years, and I had been a part of the um, drug court team um, probably three years prior to going into private practice. And I really was so very passionate about the treatment courts. And that was actually the reason why I went into private practice because at that time it looked as though my position over at Gateway was going to shift and I wasn't going to be able to be a part of the treatment courts. And so um, I felt at that time that it would behoove me and this community to go into private practice and if I had to volunteer for a while, which I did for the first at least a year and a half, I believe. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. very selfless. Well, and it was risky, I know, but it was it just was something that I believed so wholeheartedly in. And I honestly believed um, that, you know, the face of case management was really changing and there wasn't funding for case management. But I am very passionate. If people's lives don't change, if their recovery environment doesn't change, if we just um, help them maintain sobriety for um, a couple of years, that wasn't going to be enough, that we really needed to look at their whole life, the whole person, um, and what that encompassed and what needed to be different after they left treatment court. She takes us through what she does when she first meets with new participants. So when somebody comes into my office for the first time, when a participant comes in, and I do try to get them in the first month of them entering into the court, you know, many times if they're not sober, the work that I can do is limited. However, I can get a good feel for what's going on in their lives. And so I sit down and I'm doing um, basically a case management evaluation. You know, I'm talking with them. I ask them a lot of questions and I'm talking with them about their life in general. You know, where do they live? What was the last job that they had? You know, um, are they on food stamps? Do they have Medicaid? Um, do they have a family? Um, have they seen their children? Do they have parenting plans? If their children are not with them, um, you know, all of these things. Do they have legal issues? 90% uh, of the people that walk into my office don't just have legals, legal issues in this court, in the justice court system, but they also have them in our municipal courts or our city courts. And so many times I'm finding that they have warrants um, around the state. They have warrants here in Great Falls in the city courts. And so um, part of what I'm doing in that first month or two is stabilizing all of that, is helping them address those things those things that had they've just kind of been pushing under the table and, you know, ducking behind um, this car and that car and to, to get away from some of those things. So my job is to look at all of that. And um, I pride myself because I have been a case manager in this community for such a long time. I pride myself on being a one-stop shop. When they come into my office, I'm not telling them, go over here to the Office of Public Assistance and you can go get on Medicaid and food stamps. No, I'm doing that in my office. Um, I'm not sending them out the door and telling them, you know, call one of these five um, doctors and I'm sure somebody can get you in for medically assisted treatment. I'm doing that in my office. Um, so the things that have been barriers to them in the past, um, the inability just to walk into a, a, a building um, and ask for help. I mean, if they could ask for help, we, we wouldn't have them. And so they haven't learned that skill yet in being able to ask for help. So I'm trying to teach them that in my office in, in a comfortable environment where they don't feel intimidated or um, like they're being judged. Um, it's a one-stop shop. I can do all that right in my office. So I'm assuming that a lot of those, meeting those different needs mm -hmm. relate to phase progression in the treatment courts. 
So um, in terms of uh, when somebody first walks in, in phase one, obviously what we want to do is we want to, we're looking at just stabilizing that individual. And so um, I'm not going to start talking to them necessarily about a job. I want to know the last job that they had or where they last worked. But I'm more so going to be look at where are they sleeping? Are they fed? Um, do they have clothing? Do they have personal hygiene? You know, are their basic needs being met? And so that would be what we would be setting um, goals around in that first phase would be looking at, you know, um, are they even able to get, you know, sober? And so if they're not, then we're looking at, I'm looking at medically assisted treatment options um, or working with a um, provider on an inpatient um, bed date. So I'm communicating with MCDC, you know, out of Butte, which is our inpatient facility here in Montana. So there's different things, obviously, that I'm doing in that phase one. After phase one, now I'm starting to look really at with them, you know, how are they going to maintain? And so um, do they have their GED? Do I need to link them to um, go back to school um, to get their GED so that they can actually achieve some of the goals that they originally had in mind for themselves many, many years ago, maybe? Um, or are they ready to go back into the workforce? And if they are, then we're going to be linking on um, looking at resume building, job service. Um, if they're ready to jump right into work, then my job is to understand who in this community is hiring and who's going to hire people that, you know, have the particular felony or misdemeanor that they might be had, you know, that they have. And so that's what I'm looking at um, in phase two. Um, in phase three, um, and, and I guess I should back up, phase one, again, as I said before, is also legal issues because if they have warrants, we need to get those quashed. So phase two, we're looking at, I'm looking at, you know, what do they want to do in terms of a career? Do they need more education and so on and so forth? And then I'm also looking at what do they need to do to get things like um, modes of transportation in place? Um, they might have been using the bus here in phase one, but in phase two, let's look at getting your driver's license. And so we're looking at what it takes to get your driver's license. Um, and a lot of times in phase one, we found out that they had lots of restrictions because of driving without a driver's license. Those things, but we're working, um, we're building, I guess. We're building from one phase to the next. Um, so there's all kinds of things like that. And then phase four, they're moving into like a, what we call our alumni group. And our alumni group is um, for individuals who are no longer in treatment. They might have phased out of treatment now. So they're still doing their community support groups and such. But they're also responsible for coming to alumni group once a month, which is on our fourth Tuesday of the month. And I lead that group. And that is a combination of people who have previously graduated from treatment court and are coming back. And then people in our later stages of um of treatment as well it, that are actively in court. Once they complete all the phases and their treatment requirements, they graduate from drug court. While I visited these treatment courts, I was lucky enough to witness two graduations, one from the Veterans Treatment Court and one from the Adult Drug Treatment Court. I can confidently say that there was not a dry eye in the room during these graduations. The graduates of these programs would get up, make a speech about how far they've come, and people who were there to witness their accomplishment, friends, family, mentors, other drug court participants would stand up and share stories about the growth that they have witnessed of these participants. Meeting different requirements and meeting goals do affect how participants move from one phase to another. 
Once they meet all of the phases, they graduate from drug court. Of course, all of the drug court team members were present for the graduations, and each graduate gave at least one shout out to at least one person on the team. I was able to tell that the team truly cares about the success of their participants. This is Lizzie again, giving her take on why drug courts are important. For the justice system, I think if we had more drug courts, then we could address the problems more readily. Because sending people to prison or just putting them in jail or straight probation is not changing the problem. It's not making a solution. It's just putting people out of the way for a little while and not solving any of the, any of the issues that they have that have caused them to use drugs. But when treatment courts, we solve the root problems and then people can move on with their lives. So I think if we move forward with more drug courts around the nation, I know it's expanding, but we could always use more. And I think if we put treatment as a higher priority than incarceration, then we could actually solve the root causes and reduce the opioid crisis and the drug epidemic. At least one of the drug court team members we have already heard from in this episode used to be critical of the drug court model and those who needed medication-assisted treatment to overcome their substance use disorder. They also never thought they would end up in the role they have now. We'll hear more about that person and their story in the next episode. Thanks for listening. You can download the episodes from this podcast series through the iTunes podcast store or on ndcrc.org. Just search ndcrc in the podcast store. I also want to encourage you to check out the National Drug Court Resource Center website at ndcrc.org if you're looking for any resources or information on problem-solving courts. We have an extensive clearinghouse of research pieces and operational documents for practitioners working in problem-solving courts. We also have an interactive map and database of all operational drug courts in the country. If you work in a juvenile drug treatment court, please check out our website at au-jdtc.org. The Resource Center is funded in part through a grant from the Bureau of Justice Assistance, Office of Justice Programs, U.S. Department of Justice. Neither the U.S. Department of Justice nor any of its components operate control are responsible for or necessarily endorse this podcast or the NDCRC website, including, without limitation, its content, technical infrastructure, and policy and any services or tools provided. Podcast artwork, mixing, and editing by me, Anna Kuzman. Original music by Peter Grosser, titled Skipping in the No Standing Zone. 